0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Community Church. If it's your first time here, we extend to you a very special welcome, but I'm so glad every one of you are here this morning. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder At grace, and I love these days, these baptism days that that people profess their faith. One of the things that I often say, I didn't say it in the first service, and should have, is that when we're baptized, we tend to think, especially in evangelical America, we think this is something that I am doing for God. But scripture tells us that this is also something God is doing for us. When Jesus went under the waters in the Jordan, John the Baptist tried to dissuade him, saying, no, 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 you can't do that. These waters are polluted with the sins of the people. And he's like, absolutely, I'm going to do this. And in a very real sense, he identified with us when he was baptized. And when we're baptized here, we're identifying with him. So Hannah says, I belong to Jesus for the rest of my life. And the Lord says... Uh, I belong to julian and and to Ezra and to Danielle for the rest of their lives. I belong and for all eternity. we say I belong to you, he says, I belong to you as well. you belong to me. Well, if you've been attending grace for some time, you're asking uh used to me asking a question to begin the sermon. Sometimes I'll ask for a show of hands, but really the primary purpose of the questions when I have them, which is like 90% of the time I find myself doing, is to just to focus our minds on the truth of the text that we're going to be talking about. If we're not taking our direction from the text, if the text is not informing our thoughts, then we're getting the direction for life from the wrong sources. It's not that we've got a point we want to make and throw it into the text, but the text tells us what we need to know about life. And when you look at it that way, week after week after week, day after day after day, year after year, begin to realize that a lot of the things that people say, oh, yeah, just like the Bible says, the Bible's not really saying that. It's saying something different. And so you've got to be committed to being in the Word if you want to know how God is guiding you week in and week out. So the question today is a personal one. No hands, please, on this question. Because truly, you could be on this end of the scale this morning and way over here by this afternoon. It's one of those questions. So here's the question. Are you generally satisfied with your place in the condition Of your life. You feel pretty good about where you are with life. Or is it just not turned out at all. Like you thought. That it might. And have you managed. Your life as well as you might have. Of course the answer is no. None of us have done it well. But you know what I'm saying. Generally have you managed your life to this point. As well as you may have. Have you taken advantage of opportunities. That have come your way. Have opportunities come your way or has everything seemed to work against you? I really am convinced that most of us have no idea of the blessings that have come our way and how difficult life might have been if we had not had the circumstances that have been ours over the years. Have you decided what your primary purpose is? In life is. And if so. Have you pursued it. As if indeed it were the primary. Purpose of your life. Or are you often and easily. Distracted. From the important. By the trivial. What about your relationship with Jesus. Now we're getting down to it. Right okay. It's church. Got to ask that question. Have you pursued Jesus? Have you pursued to the multiple ways that He has pursued you? The Lord pursues you through His Word, through His church, through friends, through family, through circumstances, and unmistakable divine coincidences. When we commit ourselves to seeking God, and especially when we find Him, we will eventually discover that He was the one seeking us all along. Our text this morning is from the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, verses 1 through 26. Next week's text will be from the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, verses 1 through 26. These verses describe the encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, although she's more commonly known as the woman at the well. Today's focus is going to be from her perspective of this encounter that she has with Jesus. You've seen movies like that, right? Where you you go through and you see it and you're thinking, oh, this is how this thing is going. And then it backs up and you see it from another perspective and you see a much bigger picture when you see that. That's kind of what we're going to do next week when we're going to look at God's perspective in this encounter and understand some of the theology undergirding the relationship between the Savior and the woman. So there'll be a lot of things today in the text that you'll say, I wonder what that means. We'll talk about it next week. On our third Sunday in John chapter 4, we'll contemplate and hopefully engage in our hearts and minds and be led to in our lives the mission that Jesus explains to his disciples after the encounter with the woman. He uses that as a jumping off place to say, now look, this is what God is leading me to do and he's leading you to do the same thing. Since our text is in narrative uh, form, will not stand for the reading of the text. I'll ask us to, just if you would, please bow your head and let's pray uh, before we begin working through John 4. Father, as we enter this simple and yet remarkable meeting That occurred in John 4. May we see ourselves both as sinners in need of a Savior and as those who were deeply loved by Jesus. It is to Him, after all, that all Scripture points, and it is in His name that we pray. Amen. At the beginning of John 4, (coughs) there is a brief A segue from the end of chapter 3 where we we saw this encounter Jesus had with Nicodemus. But then at the very end of the chapter, Jesus is baptizing in an area not far from where John the Baptist had been baptizing. So there's that in John 3 and John 4. He's moving toward Samaria for this encounter with a woman at the well. Just so you know, verse 2 is essentially saying that Jesus... Oversaw the baptism that his disciples were performing. He didn't baptize himself. But he approved the baptisms that were administered by the disciples. Just like he approves the baptisms that will be administered today in this place. And by the way, can I encourage you if you want to? It would be awesome if you would just hang around. In the second service, we usually have a little more room in the second service than we do the first. Believe it or not, you people are nuts getting up early, coming to church. But <clears throat> stay around. Watch the baptism. You can slip out in the greeting time or something like that. That'd be okay. Um, but if you do, if you decide to stay, please get in the back seats early on. That way they'll move to the front. The others will move to the front. And then you can slip out. That'd be a good idea. So... Jesus is is affirming these baptisms. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus departed for Galilee. And verse 4 tells us that he needed to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. Now, what does he mean that he needed to go through Samaria to get to Galilee? Did it mean that Jesus was in a hurry to get from Jerusalem up to Galilee, and so he was going to have to go through Samaria. That was his quickest route. Or was he saying there's some purpose in his choice of travel plans? Once we, we find Jesus in Samaria, he doesn't seem to be in a hurry at all to get out of town. So more than likely, you've got Jesus Saying, I have reason to go through Samaria. This was unusual for Jews. Let's just imagine that this is Jerusalem. This area right over here. The David Calvert domain is Jerusalem. Over there is Galilee. And here is Samaria. So, of course, if I'm going to Galilee, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to go away from the root and go all the way into Perea. Perea being to the east of uh, Israel, and then I'm going to go around Samaria and get back up here. Perea is right where you'd find Sri Lanka. I think I had Sri Lanka located in the uh, Middle East last week. It was actually, it's actually in Asia. Um, but then I'm, I'm in Galilee, and if that happens, what, what, do I, what have I done? I have avoided soiling my feet. On that nasty soil of Samaria. Why did the Jews have such antipathy toward the antipathy toward the, the, the Samaritans? Well, first of all, in, in 722 BC, you, you remember the, the northern tribes had broken off from Judea and which also incorporated Benjamin and Simeon just kind of got uh, uh, swallowed up in, in Judea. And in 722, the Assyrians came in and defeated the Israelites in the north. And they did a cruel thing. They were considered one of the cruelest conquering nations in history because they would take the people out of the land, bring other people in the land, and they forced them to intermarry. And so these racially pure Jews who understand the covenant promises of God to be only to the Jews did not consider the Samaritans. The Samaritans considered themselves Jews. The Jews most certainly did not consider the Samaritans Jews, wanted nothing to do with them, and thought they were doing God right when they walked. If you think that was dramatic and ridiculous, just imagine how dramatic and ridiculous it was for them to do that. To avoid going through Samaria. Now sometimes if they were in a hurry. They would. But you think they would speak to people. Hello. Hey. how we doing? Nice to see you. Good to see you. How's life in Samaria? Oh, no. Didn't do any of that. Boy it was just nose in the air. Walking through. Getting to Galilee. Which was a part of Israel. That had in their minds been unsoiled. So. It's it's likely that the disciples were like, really? We're going through Samaria to get to Galilee? But go through Samaria, they did. And they got to a place where Jesus was weary. That human part of Jesus was just tired. And so he sat at a well while the disciples said, we'll go for food. A Samaritan woman arrived at the well around noon. Now noon was an odd hour to be at the well. If you've been in Israel in the summer, it's hot at noon, just like it is here. Uh, you make a lot of your outdoor plans in the evening, right? If you can do something with the mosquitoes, you you you, you almost prefer them to the to the heat. Well, here's the the heat of the day, this woman comes up. But it could be more than just she's wanting to get there when nobody else is there. It could be that she's wanting to get there when nobody else is there because she's got a reputation. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Um, But she walks up and Jesus is sitting there. Now at this point, a reader who is familiar with the contextual implications of the day would expect Jesus to just turn and walk away. Good grief, woman. Why would you come here when you see me in this place? Instead, Jesus begins to commit one shocking cultural faux pas after another. But those who know him, those of us who know him now are extremely grateful that he did because it reveals the heart of God and his love for us as sinners. Verse 7 is breathtaking in scope on many levels. First, Jesus spoke not only to a woman, which was unusual for Jewish men, particularly rabbis, but he spoke with a Samaritan woman. Women, like Gentiles and Samaritans, were considered perpetually unclean by Jewish theologians. Thus, it was inappropriate to speak with a woman Publicly, it just wasn't done. Not only did Jesus speak to her, but he asked her to give him water from her utensil. Just imagine this. When you're out with friends, and everybody's digging into the same dessert, you're good friends, right? If somebody that you didn't know very well were to get a piece of that dessert and then hand you the fork, what would you say? Oh, no thanks. I'm, I'm on a diet. I'm whatever, you know. I just, No, thank you. It is stunning to think what Jesus did. Give me a drink. That's part of the beautiful symbolism, is it not, of the common cup. I've drunk from a common cup at communion at the Lord's table in a couple of occasions a few weeks ago when we were in Boston. We we did it. The only problem was the guy almost drowned me. He's pouring it with wine, you know. It wasn't the juice, and it, and I'm like, okay, okay, I, I, I'm good. But there's something beautifully symbolic about drinking from the common cup. I, I know that some of you are near fainting even as we speak about it now, which is why we have the little individual cups. So here is Jesus asking the woman for a drink from her cup. The woman was as surprised as anyone that Jesus asked her, Really? Really? A Jewish man asking a woman, a Samaritan woman for a drink. Jesus said, Well, now that you mention it, perhaps you should have asked me for a drink and I would have given you living water. We have the advantage of knowing Jesus. We know his style, we know about how He ministered to people. Uh, this lady did not know Jesus, and that explain, explains her line of questioning that follows: To what did Jesus refer when He offered her living water? Probably, almost certainly the Holy Spirit. Well, again, next week, that's next week, when we talk about the theology which will not be boring, I promise you. Um, next week I may go all the way around, you know, so, but in, in her context, she's thinking, living water, what do you talk about? But next week we'll unpack what it meant that Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit and, and, and and we'll see what he was saying in his cryptic style. The, The Samaritan woman was absolutely not impressed. Uh. Sir, sir, you have no bucket, and you're going to draw water from a 100-foot well? Who do you think you are, Jacob or something? You're greater than Jacob? Jacob built this well? Doesn't tell us in Scripture, but we assume that it wouldn't be unusual that he did build a well there. But she's like, so who are you? Does this remind you at all of Nicodemus' response to Jesus saying you must be born again? Born again? (laughs) How's that? What, I'm going to be born from my mother a second time? You see the pattern, right? Jesus uses a physical analogy. This is going to be very important when we get to John 6. But he uses a physical analogy to make a spiritual point that is initially misunderstood and eventually is Understood, it all comes together. It begins to make sense. Before you're too rough on this woman, just think about the ways that we question God, and we know him. We're rightly related to him through Christ, and we're like, really, God, really? This is what you got from my life? What's going on? Jesus responded to her sarcasm by telling her that he truly was capable. Of giving her water to meet the thirst at the deepest levels of her soul. The levels that no one else understood. He didn't say it exactly like that. But I'm certain the promise of eternal life captured this woman's imagination. Sir, I would like this water that would quench my thirst. But then to save face like This guy's crazy, she says, and save me these daily trips to the well. So although her heart was moved, she wasn't all the way there yet. And in verse 16, Jesus begins to show her that her heart is her greatest problem. Not a need for physical sustenance. Go call your husband. She was likely embarrassed, but she deflected. I'm not married. Well, Jesus said, you are telling the truth there. You've been married five times, but the man you're living with now is not your husband. Have you ever been exposed at this level? I am guessing every single person here has something in your past maybe in your present that you would just die if it were exposed on the screen this morning you would just die maybe even your just your thoughts this woman was utterly exposed by Jesus although this woman's history and current lifestyle were known in the community how unnerving was it for a religious person to call her out except that this was a really funny way to call someone out jesus has already offered her living water before he exposed her sin now proponents of the law would say clean up your act prove that you're not going to sin like this anymore and then maybe god will think about Accepting you, but you've got a long road ahead of you, honey. But Jesus has tenderly brought her to the place of acknowledging her sin as she receives the grace of God in Jesus. Although the woman has recognized it in a flash, this conversation has gone from not serious at all, like, okay, living water, whatever. To uber serious. She is not ready to confess her sin just yet. And so she continues to deflect what a lot of us do in these kinds of circumstances. Sir, you must be a prophet. This was quite an acknowledgement because Samaritans only believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses, and they did not believe any prophets had come since the time of Moses. And she says, Sir, you must be a prophet. Jews and Samaritans don't agree on religion. You worship in Jerusalem, but we worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, that you can say, Oh, wait, no, wait, that's right, the Jews burned our temple 150 years ago. We have differences, sir, in our thoughts about religion. Notice that Jesus didn't apologize for the truth, nor did he allow himself to be drawn into an unprofitable social, social media, I mean, uh, argument, but he did speak directly. You don't know what you're talking about. And deep down, you know that, but we do. According to God's design, salvation comes through the Jews. Jesus' point, his heart was not to put her in her place, but to help her to understand that a new day was coming and indeed had already come. That people of all nations would relate to God in a new way, from that time forward, would not require worship in Jerusalem or in Mount Gerizim. Verse 23, let's read these verses. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And that was it. That was it. She went off to tell everybody, I found him. Again, maybe not, didn't use those words, but I have seen the Messiah. He's revealed himself to me. Come. He's told me everything. And he cares deeply anyway. The implications of these verses are staggering. Next Sunday we'll consider this, this encounter from God's point of view. With all of the theology that guides us in our understanding of Jesus. And the central focus of, of, of scripture and of the world. That's, that's who Jesus is. That central focus. Today we're going to conclude our time with with five ways that Jesus sought the Samaritan woman. Beginning with, first, Jesus met her where she was. The woman that Jesus met at Jacob's well knew very well who she was. She had a reputation in the area as a woman who had been married to five different men. And by the way, it was men who initiated divorces in those years, so it's not like she got tired, one cast them off, got tired of another. They got tired of her and cast her off. Think of how insignificant this woman must have felt. Her conversation With Jesus indicates that she could hold her own if she were challenged about her worth and dignity. But that was all on the outside. That's not what was going on on the inside. It's likely she felt hollow and desperately lonely. Jesus met her where she was. In ancient times, political enemies of the state were often exiled. They were told, get out of this land and don't ever set foot here again. Not until the Russians began exiling prisoners to Siberia in the 18th century did nations begin to exile prisoners in their own land, which was really... (laughs) A rather cruel punishment when you think about it. As Count Alexander Rostov noted in the novel, A Gentleman in Moscow. When you exile exile a man in his own country, there is no beginning anew. For the exile at home will discover that the love for his country will not become vague or shrouded by the mist of time. Before... Because we are natured to pay the utmost attention to that which is just beyond our reach, these men are likely to dwell on the splendors of Moscow more than any Muscovite who is at liberty to enjoy them. Now think about this unbeliever who says, We are natured to pay the utmost attention to that which is just beyond our reach. In a sense, ever since Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden, we have ironically been exiles in the land on which we were designed to live. We were designed to be here in perfection. It was supposed to be a worldwide Garden of Eden. But our sin has separated us From our God. We're within reach of peace, but it eludes us time and again. And satisfaction and fulfillment and purpose, it's all just around the corner. It's just if I can just get to that. But it never comes. Sometimes it's in our deepest need. Sometimes it's when we are feeling really good about life. Jesus meets us where we are when we least expect it. We may not fully comprehend what is happening, but suddenly, as it was with a Samaritan woman, we know that everything has changed. What has changed? We have become aware That Jesus loves us, which is the second point. Jesus loved her as she was. Now, be honest. Who is it that you just can't bring yourself to love? There are groups of people that you just cannot bring yourself to love. Republicans, Democrats. Duke fans, Carolina fans, whatever. You can't, it's like I'm not capable of loving these people. Although I know I should, I just don't. The woman at the well had most likely given up on love. Perhaps the man she was living with wanted to get married, but she said not going down that road again. Or maybe her lover wouldn't go down that road. Either way, they were living together against the law of Moses. And remember, Samaritans at least believed in the law of Moses. Who could love a woman like this? Jesus. That's who. You ever thought about both the contrast and the similarities between Nicodemus and John 3 and the woman... Uh, the Samaritan woman in John 4. They seem miles apart, and yet the Holy Spirit led the Apostle John to essentially put them back to back in John's Gospel. The similarities are probably greater than the contrast. The immoral woman was no less loved than Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was no less in need of a Savior than was this immoral woman. Samaritan woman. What is the good that you have done that gives you confidence that God will accept you when your time comes and when you stand before Him? I read about... uh, uh, I, I read a joke this week where this guy Saint Peter heard the doorbell ring in heaven, and he goes to the door, and nobody's there. And he goes, but he keeps ringing. It's like a kid playing a trick, you know. Finally, the man's there. He says, "What are you doing, messing around like this?" And and the guy says, "They keep resuscitating me. I'm sorry. I, you know, I just on, on the bringing me back to life down there." Look, Saint Peter was given the keys of the kingdom. That's that's how that all came about. I'm sure. He's going going to be the one to open the the gate. But we all have that in mind, don't we? We have something like that in mind. We're going to be standing there before God, and we're getting in, and we're not. What is the good that you have done that makes you feel confident that you're going to be good enough that he's going to open the door to you? He's going to look down the list and check it off one way or the other, and it's good enough. What is the, the bad, maybe the evil that you have done that gives you great fear that you could never be allowed in. Jesus' insistence that Nicodemus needed to be born again ought to give good people who are confident in their own works pause. Jesus' pursuit of the Samaritan woman in her sinful state ought to give the worst of sinners hope that Jesus loves them. And made a way. What does all this mean? And where do we go from here? The same place Jesus went with the woman. Which is the focus of the third point. Jesus identified her sin. Thus calling her to repent and forsake her sin. Now when Jesus called her out and said you've had five husbands. He didn't say you've got to repent from this lifestyle. But she knew exactly what he was saying. Look you've missed out. You don't know love, and I'm here to give you love, but I'm not here to leave you in your current state of the ways that you relate with other people. If Jesus didn't care for this woman, he would have either A, refused to speak with her, or B, ignored her sin. He would have just said, I'm here to give you living water. But it was his calling out of her sin that got her attention. Because she had somehow been able to block it out and just exist in life. And we do that, don't we? We've all got stuff that we'd rather not think about. And so we don't until we have to. If you're OCD, God bless you. I'm that way. I know your pain and your problems. But most of us just try to block it out and go on with life as best we can. But when Jesus puts his finger on it. And he puts his finger on it. (coughs) Excuse me. As he pours out his love on us. That's a whole different story. I'm not kidding. Probably the times that I feel the most joy in my life. Are the times that I am the most overwhelmed with my sin. And I'm confessing to the Lord. And understanding He loves me in spite of my absolute worst. There was no question about Jesus' love for this woman. But perhaps she thought, you know, if he just knew who I am, he would not be offering me living water that leads to eternal life. Well, it turns out Jesus did know who she was. And the offer... Still stood. He loved her as she was. But interestingly, he did not accept her as he was. He called her to leave her sinful lifestyle and to follow him. The best example of that in scripture that I know of is the rich young ruler. Jesus comes to him. He says, Master, what must I do? Good teacher, he says. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus was essentially trying to say, "There's only, and he said, there's only one good. Why do you call me good? He was saying, are you saying that I'm God? I am. Who, that is who I am. But he says, uh, "He said, okay, here's what you do. You f- fulfill all the commands. Follow them all. He says, I've done it from my youth. He said, oh, you only lack one thing. Sell everything you have and follow me. And the man went away sad, but Jesus did not go after him. He loved him as he was, but he did not accept him as he was. That doesn't mean we have to clean up our, our lives and then God will think about. It's just, no, when you come to this point in your relationship with Christ, or when he comes to you and indicates his love to you and he calls you to repentance and faith, those are the two elements of salvation from our perspective. We repent Of our sins, we acknowledge, we say, God, I am exactly the kind of sinner you say I am. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. When we do that, we are welcomed into the family. And we'll never sin again, right? Of course we'll sin again. But we go into that relationship saying, I give it all up. I am yours. So in identifying this woman's sin, Jesus implied that she should not stay in her sin and that he was the deliverance from the sin that enslaved her mind, body, and soul. What about that sin, past or present, that is keeping you from the Lord? He knows that sin. And He calls you to repentance and rest. Trust His forgiveness. Follow His lead all the way, as is stated in the fourth point. Jesus did not allow this woman to worship Him in her own way. She was trying to. She was saying, hey, you do it this way, we do it this way. Banana or tomato, tomato, whatever. And you... Let's all we could come to some agreement, and he's like, "Nope, nope, Jews do it this way, and this is the way salvation has come. You need to acknowledge that I am the Messiah. I'm the only way to worship God. The message in John's gospel along with all Scripture is this, Jesus is the only way to heaven. It's not sort of Jesus, it's not Jesus plus something else, or Jesus forgives me so I can live as I please. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with Hannah and Justin, two of the ones that will be baptized today, in the office. And I said, Justin, where are you from? He said, Los Angeles. I said, "What, what, what are you doing here, engineering school? So uh, he said, I was an atheist. I came here, Troy. It was helping me to understand about Jesus. He said, I was an atheist. I was miserable, had nothing to live for. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me telling you this. I said, yes, you were an honest atheist. (laughs) There are not many honest atheists. But all of a sudden, Jesus captures his life, and he, he, he understands everything in a moment. He understands nothing, but he understands everything. Now, Hannah... I said, what about you, Hannah? She said, I grew up in a Christian home. And I thought I was automatically a Christian. I thought it was my right to be a Christian. And I got here and and Lacey helped me to see that all of us must be born again. It's really these two people that we see in John 3 and John 4. And they both understand this is an all or nothing proposition. I didn't even know God exists. Now I've given my whole life to Jesus. I thought just because I was in a Christian family that I belonged to God. And now I see Jesus sought me out personally and caused me to himself. When Jesus told the woman of her sin and then told her there's only one way to worship, and it's not through standard religion, he was saying to her that a relationship with him is all or nothing. Aren't you glad that Jesus leaves no room for half-hearted allegiance? Look, in our culture, you're being pulled every way and what you believe today, you're probably going to change your mind on yesterday because somebody else changed your mind or everybody's screaming at you. Oh, okay, I'll get it straight. I'll get it straight. Oh, please forgive me. I I shouldn't have said that. Just follow Jesus. Just live in the gospel and don't worry about what people think or say. If they hated me, Jesus said, they're going to hate you. It's just the way it is. But you will not find love apart from all the way allegiance to him. His call to us ends with the most beautiful promise as the woman discovered in our last point Jesus called her to worship Him in spirit and truth. What does that mean? We'll talk about it in detail next week. But for now, take heart in knowing that Jesus does not leave His followers in the dark. We are all worshiping something. And sooner or later, if we're not worshiping Jesus... The false nature of the God of materialism or earthly relationships or the applause of man or good health or knowledge or pleasure or any other name you give your God will be exposed as a lie that it is. Why should we worship Jesus? Not only is He our Creator, but He is our Redeemer. He loved us enough to die on the cross for our sins. And he loves us enough to not allow us to continue in our sin. Wherever you are in life, this morning, Jesus has met you on this day and in this space through God's word, the Bible. He has spoken his love to you. No matter what lies in your past, (coughs) He stands ready to save you if you will give yourself fully to Him. Repent, believe. Jesus stands ready to bring you into His family. Let's pray. If you have never given your heart fully to Jesus, this is the day. He has met you. Maybe maybe you say, I, I, I'm nothing like this woman. I, I've, I'm a pretty good person. We'll go back to John 3 where he met Nicodemus and said, you must be born again. Maybe you came this morning thinking, well, I'll play the game just like the woman did. But... Uh, there's no way God could save me. He loves you deeply. And he calls for you this day to trust him. As we conclude our service this morning, we'll be taking our benevolence offering. We do this on the last Sunday of the month. And this m- Money is to go to those who are in need. Both in our body and out. Jesus meets us where we are. And some people need that physical uh, sustenance and help. And ultimately though. Our message is God's message to us in Christ. Look and live. Be at peace. I love you. and Father we ask for your uh, blessing on the reading and the preaching of your word on this offering and on all that we say and do. It's in the name of Christ we ask. It. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.